Good morning, West Park. That's better. Where would you rather be than together with brothers and sisters in Christ and talking about Jesus? Amen. What a great opportunity. I'm so thrilled to be with you this morning. And uh, let me pray for God's help. I certainly need it. And then we'll jump in. Father God, thank you for this day and for the reality that we can say that we are your people, in fact, your very children. And so, Father, we've come to worship you, and your servant needs your help. Uh, you know that. And so help me, Lord, and clarify my thinking and anoint my lips, and may everything that happens uh, be of you. And so, Father, speak to us in a very personal way, we ask. We love you. We want you to hear that this day from our lips. It's in Jesus' name and for his glory we have gathered and for which we pray. Amen. And amen. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Hebrews as we continue in our series on being anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ, our series on faith. And last week we kind of defined faith. You may remember that I talked about faith simply being taking God at his word, taking God at his word, which then means that you rightly respond to that revelation, that that requires you to do something. I also mentioned that faith is the deed to the Christian life. It's the hypostasis in the Greek. It's the, the ownership, the, the, the deed to uh, state that we belong to the Lord Jesus. And where does faith come from? Well, Paul tells us uh, in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the words of Christ. And I encourage you to spend time with the Lord Jesus. And so Today we're going to go back to the beginning of the book of Hebrews as we begin, begin this journey through it over the next uh, several weeks, and we're going to begin to look at the object of our faith, because biblical faith has an object, and of course the object of that faith is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is, a, I don't think there's any reasonable debate uh, I go to Israel, well, I've been to Israel six times, so I'm a bit of an Israel uh, junkie. And uh, if you've never been, you should go put it on your bucket list. Why would you want to go to, you know, some kind of resort? Um, but as you can tell by looking at me, I have a better body for the basement than I do for the beach. And that's why I guess I like going to uh, Israel as opposed to going to the beach. Uh, but if you go to Israel, there's not really any question whatsoever that Jesus lived and died. The question is not whether Jesus lived and died. The question is whether Jesus died and, and lived and lived. And I would suggest that he does live even to this day. You know, it's very interesting if you study the trajectory of first century Christianity Many people, listen carefully, many people will die for a lie if they don't know it's a lie. Agreed? Throughout human history, people die for things that's a lie, but they believe it to be true. But virtually nobody will die for a lie that they know is a lie. And from those disciples and those first century Christians on to the 500 that witnessed his resu uh, res resurrection that we uh, read about in Scripture... Hundreds of people died in very abrupt and untoward circumstances because they believed that Jesus was resurrected. Jesus was alive. They would have never known that as firsthand witnesses had they believed it was a lie. So did Jesus live and die? Yes. Did he die and live? 
Yes, and that's what we're going to study this morning is the supremacy of Christ. I hope you have your Bibles and your notes there, and I hope you're open to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to begin to read God's Word. If you're able, I invite you to stand as we read God's Word, uh, beginning at Hebrews 1, verse 1. We're going to read together, okay? Aloud and together. There's something that engages a different part of the brain when you read God's word aloud. If you've ever, well, let me move on. Okay? Hebrews 1, chapter uh, 1, obviously, verse number 1. Let's read together. It's on the screen if you don't have it. Here we go. Long ago, at, oh, hold on, start over. We're going to read together. Okay? I sound, was I echoing you or something there? Okay. We're going to read together, everybody together. Here we go. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power." After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's word. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, my Australian son-in-law would say that this passage is chockers. Do you know what that means? Chock-a-block. That's not much of a translation, is it? It means it's packed full. It's full. And this morning, I'd like to present you with six realities of the supremacy of Jesus, six realities regarding this person of Christ. And so here we go. The first reality that makes him supreme is that he is, Christ is the heir to everything. He's the heir to everything. We read in verse 2 there, whom he, he being God the Father, appointed the heir of all things. Now that makes sense to us because we've just, uh, he's just been called the son. And children are most naturally heirs to that of their parents, right? I mean, generally parents leave things to their children. Not always. In fact, if you've ever been in a lawyer's office when a will was cracked open and there's, you know, kids of the deceased there and they don't get anything, it's not a nice day, right? People are agitated, especially if you weren't a kid and you got everything, then it's really not a nice day. But, but Christ is the heir to everything of his father because he's part of the triune Godhead. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, 36 for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. It's a benediction. To Christ and through Christ and for Christ, everything was created and made. To him be the glory. Amen? He's the heir to all things. Now, why is that so profoundly important to us as Christians? Because in the Gospel of John, the Apostle John wrote to us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, does anybody know what the next three words are? Children of God. Which means that since we are children of God, that we are joint heirs. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that the Spirit bears witness 
The Spirit testifies that we are children of God. And hence, as children of God, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So you are a joint heir with Christ because he's the heir to everything. Let me ask you this. What world leader of some great world Christian, uh, world faith, pardon me, a great world religion, what leader of any great world religion has declared, what I have will be yours? You name one? I can't name one. Uh, a lot of great world religion leaders accumulate things. In fact, some of them accumulate a lot of things. In fact, some people that declare themselves as followers of Jesus, you know, build quite an accumulation of stuff. But Jesus says we are joint heirs. And if you look down to verse 5, we didn't read that far, it tells us that Jesus is superior to the angels. The angels are never offered status as family members. Nor are they offered his personal presence. In fact, if you go a little farther down to verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 1, it tells us that they are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And who's that? That's you if you're a follower of Jesus this morning. Those angels have come to serve, to serve you. That's part of your, your inheritance. Why is that? Why are angels to care for us? Because the human person is incomparably and unimaginably valuable to God the Father and Jesus the Son. You're so valuable. Christ is supreme because he's the heir to everything. Secondly, I want you to notice this. Jesus is superior not only because he is the heir to everything, but as we have just read, because he created the world. Christ is creator. Christ is creator. If, if he is creator, then that means he's self-sufficient and eternal. He's not a created one. That's what theologians call the aseity of God, the independence, the self-sufficiency of God. He's the creator. He's the creator. Colossians 1.16, you might want to write this verse down. It's a good verse to know, maybe even to memorize. For by him, this is the Lord Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. Christ is creator. If you've ever studied the thinking and writing of the late physicist Stephen Hawking, he claimed that our galaxy that we're part of is 100,000 light years across, 600 trillion miles. I don't know who measured, but it's big. And he also said that, you know, with our current capacity, with telescopes and things like that, we can see that each one contains 100 million stars. The distance between the galaxies is 3 million light years. Edwin Hubble got a telescope named after himself he developed a law which is known as recessional velocity do you know what that means yeah neither do i i sort of do but recessional velocity hubble's law means that the galaxies are moving apart from each other they're expanding they're going outward 
And Hawking has said the reason why they are going outward is because they started here and they went outward. And so Hawking and many others say something set that expansion in motion and it's called, does anybody know, the Big Bang Theory. It's not just a sitcom. And so everything sort of started and everything was set in motion and moves outwardly. Now the atheists would say... (coughs) You know, the problem with you Christians is you believe that uh, somebody did all this. In fact, theologically, that's known as the creation of our world ex nihilo, by, by no, by, out of nothing. And the atheist says, how can you believe this world was created out of nothing? But the atheist believes the world is created out of nothing by nobody. See, that's a bridge too far for me to cross. Frankly, I do not have enough faith to be an atheist. I simply don't. That the universe spontaneously created itself out of nothing according to the laws of science. But why do the laws of science conform the way they do? Why does everything function without anything that's seemingly in control and and yet they, they have these undebatable complex interdependabilities and it just seems to work? So if you're here and you say, well, you know, the Big Bang cosmology is correct, right? Then the cause of the universe would seem to have several attributes. Those attributes would include that that the earth has, that the, the cause of the universe was spaceless because space was created. It was timeless because the Universe existed in eternity, but time was created within it. It is immaterial, and then it created matter. It's intelligent because the creation event and the universe we know was precisely designed. I'll talk about that in a minute. It's powerful because it is created out of nothing, ex nihilo. It's personal because it made a decision, a choice to convert a state of nothing into a state of something. And not only are those the attributes of the cause of the universe, those are the attributes of God. Robert Jastrow, who was a brilliant physicist and futurist and astronomer, who was not a believer, he was an agnostic. And he always claimed that atheists have their own religion, and it's the religion of science. And he said this, There is a kind of religion in science, and if you've ever taken a science class in high school or university college, you'll know this, that every effect must have a what? Cause. Cause and effect, right? Yet there is no first cause. Hence, the religion of the scientist then is violated. Scientists, therefore, have painted themselves into a corner because they know the world began abruptly. The world had a beginning under conditions in which the known laws of physics are not valid. And so they're traumatized by that. And scientists, in many cases, like anybody who faces trauma, the mind reacts often by ignoring the implications. You know, if you've ever been around, which I have many times, uh, been in, you know, hospitals, emergency rooms, and, and you know, a nurse or a doctor comes out and says, I'm sorry to tell you that Your mother, your child, your brother has passed away, and that is so traumatizing, the person responds with, no, that cannot be true, that's impossible. 
you ignore the implications. In science, it's known as refusing to speculate. So they simply call it the Big Bang. So if you buy Hawking's explanation, fine. But, but I think there is a creator, someone who caused all of this ex nihilo, and the word of God tells us that it's Jesus Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers. Colossians 1.16 is the reference if you want to mark it down. So Christ is not only simply the heir to all things, he is the creator. Look down, if you will, a little farther. Number three, Christ is the glory of the Father. The radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. You see what it says there? He is the radiance of the glory of the Father in the exact imprint of his nature, which means he is both divine and definitive. Let me unpack those two. He's divine. Jesus does not reflect God's glory. He's not a mirror, right? You know, a mirror can reflect your image, but it can't create your image. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He emanates the glory of God because he is God. And he's also definitive, the exact imprint of his nature. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. He's an exact representation. You know, I used to go to Eastern Europe quite a bit. Uh, I used to lead a mission organization. I did that for five or six years. And one of the places we did a lot of work was in Eastern Europe. And so one time I was over there and I met this nice lady uh, in this little church in a country called Moldova. Anybody here ever been to Moldova, the little country of Moldova? Yeah, two or, two or three have been. Wonderful. Yeah, I know, I know you have, John, for sure. So I was over in Moldova. I was in this little church that was part of our mission organization. And uh, so I was, I was there, and there was a lady in the church, and she was a very proficient painter of German shepherds. And she could paint a German shepherd. I mean, it looked like that thing was going to start barking. It looks so much like, and they were really good pictures, really good paintings. So when I was home back, and we lived in South Carolina, and in the South, it's very common for wealthy Southern families, which I was not, but it's very common for wealthy Southern families to get a picture painted of their children. They commission an artist, and they paint a picture of their children. And if you're ever in the South, and you're in Southern, big, opulent, you know, well-heeled people, they'll have a picture of them. This all here is our children. We had this painting commissioned, which means we spent a whole lot of money to get this because we got lots of money. This is our children here on this painting. So when I was home in South Carolina, I said to my wife, we should get Natasha, she's a really good painter, to paint a picture of our kids. Wouldn't that be nice? And we'd always have this painter of our, painting of our kids. So the next time I went back to Moldova, I got a hold of Natasha. I said, Natasha, I brought a bunch of photographs, and I want you to cobble those together in a painting of our kids. And, and I said, and I'm going to pay you because I wanted to honor her and I wanted to be helpful to her. And so I offered to pay her, you know, what was a lot of money to her. And she was very excited, very honored to do it. And I said, next time I'm back here, which will be three, you know, two or three months from now, I'll get the painting. She goes, oh, no, no, I'll do it right away. And I was thinking, oh, don't hurry it. Like, it's best to let this sort of marinate. So within no time, she painted a picture of our kids. And let me tell you this. Natasha is a much better painter of German Shepherds. Uh, and so, so she presented me this picture, and it was just a bit unusual. And so I took it 
across the ocean back to my home, and my wife was not hugely surprised at what I had done. Our marriage has been those kinds of experiences. It, it, it sort of looked like our kids, kind of. The painting is in our basement, and every once in a while when our kids are all together, which is not often, somebody goes down and gets the painting. You know, and, and, and they're going to, you know, they're going to, you know, threaten to hang it, nail it to the wall in one of their homes, right? So it was sort of, listen carefully, Jesus is the exact imprint of God. If you want to see God, you look to Jesus. In fact, in the Nicene Creed, it says this. It can't be more succinct. Jesus is very God of very God. Isn't that amazing? God steps out of the glory of heaven, moves into the neighborhood. And Christ radiates his glory and shows us his nature. It's so amazing, so wonderful. Let, let me just say this. If you're here this morning, if you're here this morning and you're not a person of biblical faith, you're not a follower of Jesus, this stuff's kind of weird, you know, woo, weird to you. And you think, and, and let me just say this, let me encourage you. If you're trying to figure this out, is this Christianity thing the real deal? Do not look at Christians. Okay? Look at Jesus. Don't look at me. I'm a, I'm a very inadequate representative of him who I claim as my leader, frankly. I'm trying to be more like him. But if you want to see what Christianity is like, look at the Christ one. He will not disappoint you. He will not confuse you. He will not betray you. Because he is the glory of Father God and the exact imprint of his very nature. Let's keep moving on. Number four. Number four. He is the sustainer of everything. You see what we read there? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the sustainer. He makes the world work, which means that he's fully trustworthy. If you're here this morning and you're saying, you know, man, I don't think I can carry on. I think I can press on. I am in the deep end of the pool of life right now. Let me read that again. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, including you. Tells us in Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. A few years ago, I read a story about a bird. It's kind of a medium-sized bird called the red knot. Very interesting bird. It's a shore bird, lives, you know, along the shorelines. But every year, this bird, which is, you know, about the size of a, you know, kind of a pigeon, that sort of a size of a bird, not a huge bird. But every year, hundreds of thousands of these birds leave their summer home in a place called Tierra del Fuego, which is an archipelago right at the very southern tip of South America, and they fly 9,000 miles to the Canadian north. And they fly up through Guiana and Suriname and up, up through South America, and they fly up, and oddly enough, they stop in Delaware Bay. And they stop there at the exact time that horseshoe crabs are laying eggs because the red knot has a very narrow diet. And one of the things that it eats like it was going to the mandarin are horseshoe crab eggs. 
It eats 130,000 of those. And this bird lands there at the time that horseshoe crabs are laying their eggs, and they feast on those eggs and refill their tank and sort of plump up, and then they continue to fly up through the Canadian wilderness, up into the Canadian north. They make some refueling stops, and they land there, and they spend time there for the winter. And they mate and breed uh, way up north of Hudson Bay. They mate and they breed. The females lay their speckled little eggs. And she uh, incubates, and so does the husband. He helps doing the incubating. Way to go, red knot husbands. And soon the little baby red knots appear. And they grow feathers. And this is so incredibly scripted. And by late July, the females actually leave first. And they leave the males, and they leave the babies, and they begin to fly south again. The males leave about exactly one week later. They begin to fly south, and then the little ones fend for themselves. And then in late August, the little ones commence a 9,000-mile journey they've never done before from north of Hudson Bay to the tip of South America. It's unbelievable. They begin that flight without even parental companionship. And somehow they have this precise destination in mind. The only thing they have to work with is Google Maps. <laughs> they have this precise destination in mind. And then in what appears like almost a date and an appointment, coming in almost on GPS, they rejoin their families at Tierra del Fuego at the tip of South America. And here on those balmy beaches, they uh, blow out their tattered feathers from the long journey because the weather's warmer and the ideal temperatures, they enjoy those and they get ready to do that journey again, 29,000 kilometers round trip. Totally uninstructed, no GPS, no in-flight radar guidance. Let me show you a picture here. Anybody like car racing? Okay, into car racing. So these, this, these are two F1 racers, and this is the team that they need to go around in circles. <laughs> now, just to put that in context, an F1 race is 300 kilometers. They need these people behind them to do a 300-kilometer race. The red knot sandpiper bird does what is equivalent to 95 F1 races without any help. Now, how does that happen? Because I believe the Bible is true when it tells us he is the sustainer of all things. The sustainer of all things. Let me get personal for just one minute, if I might. About eight years ago, I woke up three days, four days, three or four days before Christmas. I was pastoring a large church like West Park. The church was going fantastically well. The day before, I baptized 17 new believers. But as the church was growing in people and money and influence and locations and all of that, like many Christian leaders... My ego was growing and my accountability was decreasing. And even though the elders who I served under loved me would say, Steve, you got to take it easy, man. You're just going too hard and fast. I believed I was Superman. And I woke up one morning and the wheels had come off. 
And I was three days away from Christmas Eve service where I would have to speak to 2,500 to 3,000 people over three services, and I could not even get out of bed. And I said, something has gone horribly wrong. And I contacted a doctor who I had sent many people to who was a counselor, and I said, I think I need to come and see you. And he said, let me call you back. He called me back in a couple hours. He said, I want you to come on Friday morning. I said, Friday morning is Christmas morning. He said, I know, I know it is, but I, I, I think God wants me to see you. I think you're in trouble. So come on Christmas morning. So I went to his home on Christmas morning, and he said, you are completely burned out, and you're going to need time off. And I said to him, let me ask you something. Am I done in ministry? He said, I don't know, but maybe. I said, wow. About four days later, which was three or four days after Christmas, I was walking on a trail down where I live in Cambridge in the snow, nobody around, quiet. And Satan was running around in my head saying, Adams, you might be done, you smarty pants. Ha, 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 ha. Howard Hendricks used to say, you know, a lot of people in ministry say, I'd rather burn out than rust out. The problem is you're still out. I'm walking down this trail, and I stop, and I say, Lord, am I done? I think I'm done. What am I going to do now? This is what I know how to do. And I'm standing in this trail, and the most brilliant red cardinal flies in front of me and stops about right there. Right there, hovers right there in front of me, within arm's reach, stops right there. And, I, and I'm stunned, and the bird begins to talk. No, it didn't. I made that part up. I just wanted to see if you were still with me. The bird stopped right there. I could have grabbed the bird. You know, I'd never experienced anything like that. And it flew away. The bird didn't talk, but God did. You know what he said to me? He said, oh, remember what I told you in my book, that if I'm going to look after sparrows, I'm going to look after you. I was like, thank you, Lord. I needed that. Because I was broken. I was hurting. I was disillusioned and discouraged and disoriented. And in that moment, God reminded me that he is the sustainer of the universe and of you and of me. Amen? Amen. Amen. The glorious Christ. Look at number five. He's the solution for our sin, the solution for our sin. He's making purification for our sins. Why? Because he loves us. He meets our spiritual needs that cannot be met. My, my best friend Kevin, growing up, my dad, one day, I think he must have had too much to drink, he hired me and Kevin to paint our house. We were about 13. We said, yeah, we can do it, Dad. We knew nothing about painting anything. My dad went to Sears, bought a $25 gallon of paint. In those days, that was an expensive gallon of paint, 25 bucks. And he brings it home, and we crack the lid off of it, and my friend Kevin goes up the extension ladder with the full gallon of paint, which tells you we knew nothing about painting. 
And he was hardly up there two or three minutes painting. We had a clapboard, you know, clapboard on our house. And he's up there painting way up in the extension ladder. And he's leaning out a little farther, a little farther. And guess what happened? I'm going, you're, you're tipping, you're tipping. And he starts to come. He doesn't know what to do. He throws the $25 gallon of paint, which in those days, it wasn't no water-based paint. That was oil. And that paint can went upside down and landed. And my parents had this prized pyramidal kind of pine tree right next to our front door. And that puppy landed on that thing. And it was white three quarters of the way down. We stood there and looked at it. Kevin looked at it. I looked at it. He was kind of still shaking up, falling off the ladder. Kevin says, what are we going to do? And after a while, I said, well... I think we're going to do two things. We're going to charge my dad for an extra, and we're going to give it a second coat, which we thought was funny, but my dad didn't think it was all that funny when I told my dad. And it wasn't funny because my dad knew he could not fix that tree. He could not get that pain off that tree. That tree would never be the same. You will never be the same with your sin. You are crushed. You are painted. You are covered. And the only purification you can find is by way of the Lord Jesus. And he somehow supernaturally, miraculously, by his blood cleanses you. And you can walk in newness of life. And when the devil comes and says, nah, you're condemned, you can say, no, I ain't. I'm saved by the blood of the lamb. Yeah. Finally, this, friends, he is the ruler seated on high. He's ruling from on high. Christ is ruling from on high. Look what we read. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why did he sit down? Because his redemptive work is complete. He's done. He's going to sit down. You know, if you're old like me, or even older than me, you know that there is history-defining statements that are made, right? One history-defining statement, let me test you on this. This statement here. Mr. Watson, come here. I need you. Who said that? Anybody know? Somebody in the first service was Scottish, and I heard this guy shout out, Alexander Graham Bell! It was great. It had such you know, fervor to it, right? Alexander Graham Bell, right? That was the beginning of the telephone, which has changed everything for us when we think of, you know, wireless communication. There's, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Who was that? Anybody know? Neil Armstrong, right? Standing on the moon, debate us that what exactly he said because they were static. A little more recently, we just celebrated an anniversary of this. World leader says this, gets on TV, blurts out this sentence. Today, our way of life, our very freedom, came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist attacks. Who said that? That was George Bush, 9-11, right? And you knew that the world had changed. But listen, friends, let me share this. The sentence that declares the most profound and powerful and hopeful change in all of human history is a declaration of three words. It is finished. Redemption has been completed by way of Jesus. It is finished. Wow. I did what you wanted me to do, Father. Now I'm going to come. I'm going to sit down next to you. Right? John 19.30, if you want the reference. 
With that, he hung his head and he gave up his spirit. That's why in Acts 4.12, it tells us that there's no, under, no other name under heaven given by which man must be saved. We must be saved. It's King Jesus. And if he is sitting on high, listen, one day he's going to stand up again. Amen? Let me leave you with two questions. I'm done. First question is this. Is there any person who even begins to compare with Jesus? Is there anybody that you can think of that even, be, not even close? I would challenge you to think about that. And secondly, this. What will Jesus mean to you this week? If he is what I have just declared, those six realities, what will that mean to you this week? If you are a joint heir, because he is the heir and he's made you a joint heir, reject fear this week. I I have all the resources I need in Christ because I am a joint heir. If, If he is creator then worship them this week. I drive from Cambridge on Sunday mornings, and I usually come through the country way, and as I drive through southern Ontario in the last week or so, I look across the fields, and what do you think is happening? What's happening? Trees are changing. And sometimes you look and you see a tree, and it's brilliant orange or red, and you just go, that is incredible. Let me encourage you, you see that. You know, you're out driving down the road. Stop your car and get out and just enjoy that and worship. Way to go, Jesus. That is so amazing. That is so typical of your creative genius. Now, people driving by, they'll wonder why you're out there clapping. You know, don't do it on the 401. But worship him. He's worthy of that. If he is creator, he's worthy of that. If he's the glory and the radiance of the Father, I encourage you this week, draw near to him. He invites you into his presence. The Muslim doesn't believe that God is personal. There's no capacity for that in Islam. If he's the sustainer of everything, then you trust him. He's going to keep you and sustain you. As the solution to our sin, then rest in him. When the devil comes to condemn you, remember that you are safe in the hands of the Lord Jesus And spoiler alert, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And if he's the ruler seated on high, let me suggest this to you. Then get ready, because he's coming back. He's coming back, amen? He's coming back. The supremacy of Christ, no one has ever nor ever will compare. What does Jesus mean to you? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Father God, we are very aware of the inadequacy of the human capacity to even begin to declare the glory of the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, all we can do today is say we love you, We desire to walk in your ways. We are profoundly grateful for grace. And give us courage to declare the greatness of Christ to those who are not yet aware of that reality. To God be the glory for great things you have done. Amen.